I just wanted to understand, like, why am I here? Why am I alive? What, what the heck is this all about? That feeling of almost like, am I like some kind of alien? And I'm, you know, I'm an imposter and all these other humans that are running around, they seem like they know what they're doing. And I feel like, wait, what, what is this? What? And so that sense, I guess, was at the heart of this original script. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you would like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the Patreon page for Half Hour Intern at patreon.com slash half hour intern. In today's episode, we interview somebody that we have already had on the show before, and that is Michael Gorgian. If you are a OG fan of Half Hour Intern, you'll remember Michael from actually a two-part interview that we did. Um, just we we talked for so long about like philosophy and spirituality and stuff like that, that we had to split his episode into two parts. But Michael is a famous um, actor and director, and he recently wrote his first book. And during the time that we did the first interview um, for one of the episodes, we talked a little bit about the writing of the book, but um, he wasn't quite finished up with the book yet or anything like that. And we said then, if any of you remember, that we would have him back on the show when the book was ready to come out. And we could talk about just the whole process of writing the book and like what was in store next for someone that's releasing a major book. So anyways, that is what this episode is all about. I was fortunate enough to have kind of like made a relationship with Michael after that first interview. And he sent me a copy of the book to look over um, and just give him many of my thoughts and stuff uh, back not too long after the first interview. And you guys, I cannot tell you how good his book is. Like I was just absolutely blown away. It's always interesting when someone is, you know, doing something for the first time and they ask you to look it over, like obviously like writing a book or if, um, you know, someone that like wants to make a song and they like make a song and they're like, Hey, will you, will you check it out and let me know how it is? And you're almost nervous to, to listen or you're almost nervous to read or whatever the thing is, because it's like, man, like if it's not that good, I obviously kind of have to say that it's good. And like, you know, what, what happens then? But his book is so good. It's so, so good. And Michael is such a good writer. And I was just so impressed by the entire thing. And we talk a lot, again, about kind of philosophy and spirituality during this interview because that's a lot of what his book is about. It's a philosophical fiction book, which um, something we'll discuss in the interview is is just like the need for books like that and, and why aren't they more common. Um because it's so great to get these really deep philosophical and spiritual ideas, um, but told in a means of a fictional story rather than so often of the time these ideas are given to us in a nonfiction setting where someone's like, you know, I want you to clear your head or what you should try to do is live like this and do these things. But these ideas are so much um kind of easier to take in in a deeper way if you're given them in a fictional setting because then it's not just the logical part of your brain that that understands that and that takes that lesson but also this kind of more emotional part of your brain checks in as well and 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 grabs on to to that lesson that is being uh imparted via this fictional story so 
he does it just again like such an amazing job of all this in his first book um it's called what lies beyond the stars by the time this episode airs it will have just come out so i cannot recommend enough that you guys uh go and check it out it is absolutely awesome i'll obviously put a link up to the book on the half hour intern site and i hope you enjoy the conversation between michael and i so without further ado here is author so, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's uh, it's great to see you. Always great to talk to you. I'm so excited for you that your book's coming out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, if you could, uh, we talked before a little bit about um, the writing process of your book, but we didn't we didn't get into that much depth of it. So, let's talk about that a lot more right now. If you could break down the process of writing What Lies Beyond the Stars. And like, how long ago did it start? How did this all take place? I'm assuming most people listening have never written a book before, but how does it go? Well, I'm new to it. I mean, this is my first novel, um, but my background's in film. So I had done quite a bit of screenwriting and actually, um, I tend to do things backwards. So, uh, like everything else in life, I wrote a screenplay, um, over 20 years ago, actually. Um, I was mid twenties or something. And I wrote the screenplay and it almost got made. I was in LA and I, I got interest and, um, you know, uh, Michelle Williams, the actress, Michelle Williams. Mm -mm, I'm terrible with names. No, that's right. She was married to uh, Heath Ledger. She's big star now. Oh yeah. Uh, so it was going to be the two of us. Uh, and I had financing. The whole thing fell apart. One of those Hollywood disaster kind of things. And so, uh, I just put the script on a shelf and went on with my life and did other things, made other films. And then, um, I've been working for this publisher, Hay House, um, which I did the, the Wayne Dyer film, um, the ship, uh, with them. And, uh, so the CEO over there, uh, they were starting up a fiction division cause they're mostly nonfiction, this publisher. Right. And, uh, he said, well, you know, uh, he, I had given him the script. I had pulled it off my proverbial shelf or whatever. And, uh, I was like, man, eh, this is, you know, this is actually really good. I'm glad I didn't make it 20 years ago. Cause I read it. I was like, Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. But there was something in it that I still felt the was, concept you like, but not necessarily the execution. Exactly. I was, it was a great idea with horrible dialogue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just but, all uh, straight up, like late eighties, <laughs> early nineties dialogue. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> not to date myself too much, but that's almost that's pretty much what I wrote it. I love it. <laughs> um, but anyways, I showed it to um, the CEO and he said, well, you know, we're starting a fiction division. What are your thoughts on would you want to do a novel? And, he, you know, he knew I wasn't a novel writer and said, well, you know, we could have somebody help you do a ghostwriter thing or something. And it's like, eh. and then I thought about it and I convinced myself. Yeah, why not? I can do I, I'll knock it off in a, a year and, and be done with it. And then I can, you know, help. It'll help me raise money for to do the film again. And yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then I thought, well, sure, I, I'll have somebody help me. But once I sat down and really started working on it, I was like, OK, no, nobody else can write this. I have to write it on my own. Um, and it ended up taking about four years. Wow. <laughs> so, That's uh, so interesting. Than what? I 
you, you mentioned like how how you really that there was like something there that you looked at from the um, original screenplay that you wrote, but it just it wasn't quite hitting the mark. Is it just little things in dialogue and this and that that were not hitting the mark, or was there like any sort of major thing that really stood out from the original version that you were like, all right, this this really needs an overhaul? Well, I'm a firm firm believer of. Um, uh, I guess a, a creative process. It doesn't matter what you're doing, where, where you look at something and then you look away and then you look at it and you look away. And you know, this, I looked away for quite a while on this yeah. one, but uh, <laughs> that time in between is where you're digesting and you're, you're able to get back to a more objective point of view, maybe. So with this, um, it was the initial, uh, kind of essence of the feeling of it the script and the book really describes a kind of existential longing that i think uh especially in today's climate so okay we're talking about what lies beyond the star which is the stars which is my novel and um it has a great story which we can talk about but the the essence of it is really about this longing that i had I don't know, since I was a teenager, and I think a lot of people have, um, I just wanted to understand, like, why am I here? Why am I alive? What what the heck is this all about? Mm-hmm. And that feeling of almost like, am I like some kind of alien? And I'm, you know, I'm an imposter and all these other humans that are running around, they seem like they know what they're doing. And I feel like, wait, what, what is this? What? And so that sense, I guess was at the heart of this original script. And that's the part where I went, uh, you know, there's some, this is, that part of it is uh, what I latched onto. And in terms of what changed, you know, uh, the maturity of myself as a writer, um, the more time you do anything, the more you grow. And I I was just a better technician now. Um, I know story a lot better. A lot of the films uh, that I had done between when I first wrote it and now, um, strangely have a similarity in that I did the films I did for Hay House. They were films where it was a concept, like, uh, with Wayne Dyer's film, Wayne has specific ideas, uh, philosophical or, uh, with him, even spiritual ideas that he's trying to convey. Now taking that and turning it into fiction, um, telling a story with it so it's not just here's here's how you should live your life bang hit hit you over the head with it mm-hmm. uh how do you take that and create story where where that that essence of that is in it but you don't feel like i'm getting a, a lesson um i'm being taught something because the minute you do that well uh, you know people run yeah run for the hills absolutely I man i so, yeah when you told me that yeah. you were writing this book when we last talked or during the first interview, I guess I should say, like, I just, it's, it's still amazing to me that more books like this don't come out. And, uh, it's appropriate and awesome that you just wrote a blog post on your website, like recommending other philosophical fiction books. But I feel like the most popular philosophical books are all philosophical fiction books. And yet somehow they're there. It's not a more common thing. It's very interesting. Right, right. Yeah, you, you know, everybody goes, oh, yeah, I'll go read uh, Sartre or I'll go read uh, Plato's 
public. But even Plato, I mean, if you look at uh, the cave um, analogy in, in, in Plato, it's a beautiful story, you know, about people chained up in a cave, staring at a wall and seeing reflections of uh, the outside world and, and thinking that's life. And, and the one, per- one guy who dares to strain his neck and turn around and see actual reality uh, I mean, it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful. Um, I think it's because the story, the element of talking about these things in story form or uh, metaphor uh, is you're kind of touching them on stuff that's just hard to talk about. <laughs> They're feeling uh, th- these are deeper feeling based questions, and so when you just put stuff into words that are straight information. I think the problem is, is we understand it in our head and we go, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, life is whatever you want, you know, whatever this philosophy is. Okay, sure. I get it. But you don't really get it. You don't really understand it. And the story form allows your emotions to get involved. And I think that might be the key of why, at least for me, a lot of these quote philosophical fiction books had such a deep impact on me um, was that, you know, I felt emotional reading these books yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, even just thinking about like, if let's say you say, or someone says to you, blah, 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 you know, like, so, so all of life is meaningless. And you're like, you said, it's like, you know, intellectually, you'll just be like, yes, you are right. Like all of life is meaningless. Okay, like I'm going to go on with my day now, though. Not like if, <laughs> if, you know, you're watching some movie, even even something that's not a philosophical movie, just like watching a movie and some horrible thing happens to some character and they're so downtrodden. And like internally, you have this like emotional feeling of like, oh, my God, it's all meaningless, you know, like and to somehow um, bring those two together in in philosophical fiction is is just awesome. All right, dude, let's talk about the book a little bit. So that way we can push forward and talk about some of the deeper um, contents of the book and stuff. If you could just give us kind of a brief overview of the book. I've already read the whole thing. It's so good. Um, So, yeah, please just give us an overview that we can then kind of talk from there. Okay. You know what I'll do is (laughs) let me do this by um, first. I'm going to read a little thing that I have in my blog about my book, a description of my book, um, because... (laughs) So I say in the blog uh, about my own book, whenever I'm asked the frightening question, so what's your book about? After my self-sabotaging impulse to kick the person in the shin and run (laughs) run away. I'm glad I'm on Skype with you right now. (laughs) I try to explain that it's philosophical fiction. The problem is no one knows what that means. Yes, my book has a very uh, engaging characters and a thrilling uh, plot, but beneath the fiction is another book uh, uh, layered throughout the narrative or many philosophical ideas and questions that I have wrestled with throughout my own life. And some of those layers uh, are out in the open, easy to find, uh, while many are intentionally buried quite deep uh, beneath the entertainment in a language meant to connect with a longing inside of like-minded readers. So that said, the story or the plot Mm -hmm. um, what lies beyond the stars is essentially about a San Francisco based, uh, programmer, uh, who's spent the majority of his life staring at a screen. Um, not like, you know, 
Sure. A lot, a lot like many people out there mm-hmm. um, who's kind of goes has a psychotic break and he ends up going back to uh, his hometown, Mendocino, uh, where he grew up. And uh, it's unclear why he's there. And he ends up meeting a, a woman uh, while he's out on the cliffs, kind of suicidal. And and the woman turns out to be um, a girl that he knew when he was growing up there as a kid. And it had, hadn't seen, hasn't seen since, you know, he was six, seven years old. And it's the relationship between them builds. Uh, a lot of interesting things happen. A lot of uh, uh, thrilling uh, tension. and uh, But essentially, um, the book is really about trying to, how should I put it? Um, it's about, you know, we, it's about inner transformation is one way of putting it, or the, the desire for that. Everybody, which uh, in, in many different ways, people want to try to better themselves. We, we have self-help books. We have, you know, a, uh, Tony Robbins and you have things like that. You have religions. Uh, we ha- even have science. You know, why, as we progress in science, it's, oh, we can live longer. We can do this and that. A lot of these things are very external and surface, and I have found the the real change really changing is hard. It's really hard. It's um, it's not uh, you know so many things feel like band aids, and I go, oh, here I am, twenty years later, I'm the same guy. So I really wanted to look at what is that journey of somebody who actually does. Uh, what, what do they go through? Um, what's, and, and trying to describe that deep, deep inner struggle. So that's, I guess, uh, an outline of the book in a way. Yeah. So what's so great about, about the book and, and the main character, Adam in the book is that it seems like Adam, other than this one book that he was given by a homeless man that's this like philosophical book that he really connects to and everything he he himself is not like some super philosophical spiritual dude you know it's not like that's something that he really enjoys talking about with his friends or anything like that but yet he still has this like hole inside of him and he's also on the flip of that he's also very talented at programming and a super intelligent dude and his life is going really well and and yet there's just there's just this whole there's just this void and uh like you said there there's this impetus for him to um go to where he grew up and uh yeah the the cool part about when he meets beatrice and then for beatrice is the his his childhood friend when he meets beatrice and then kind of the whole relationship that they start to develop and share is that it's just it's very kind of coincidental and serendipitous that she's there right at the right time, like when he, when he needs her and when he when he's going through this. So um, that's another like very cool element of this book is is just trying to like sift through like what's reality and what's not and what's actually going on and what's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, man, there's just so many so many good layers about the book. It's uh, it's just awesome. So I yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, um, in regards to Adam as a character, uh, you know, early on while I was writing this, I was kind of struggling with, 
in one way, I wanted him to be uh, kind of an everyman uh, for today, um, because uh, for me, a lot of the sort of deep, powerful books that I've read, uh, like uh, Demian by Herman Hesse, the char- I related so strongly to this character. But this is a guy who's living in Germany in the 1930s, um, and I wanted to try to create a character that I felt a lot of people could connect to today. Um, and yet at the same time, I, he is not completely your everyman. And, uh, especially with, uh, the work that he does, he's, he's, uh, kind of, you know, is very, does very well with programming and, and, uh, his relationship with his boss and his partner. You see, this is, you know, he's pretty extraordinary in that term. But I feel like there's so many people out there, uh, young men and young women and even older men, older women who have this sense of I, especially with computers, I have this talent, this incredible gift. And and I feel it when I'm working. And yet, where is it going? I, I, I being kind of like there's vampires around being sucked dry, selling myself, giving myself to this screen and it's not nothing I'm giving. What I'm giving is something really, it's a, ta- it's, it's something substantial. So I've, it's like, I'm, I'm a creative artist. I'm, I'm Mozart, but I've been asked to compose elevator music or, you know, totally that. Yeah. So and what do I personally sense. have to show for this? And the answer is yes. kind of nothing, you know, I mean, you, well, you have I, your money and you have whatever else, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. But there's an, there's yeah, exactly because there is a, Sure, I, I got a fancy car or I get a great paycheck or this or that, but there's a hole. And, and, and that's a, that hole inside is very hard to describe. And in today's climate, you know, where you have, yeah, sure, there's religion and there's science and there's all these forums for wondering and trying to discover what that inner thing is. But they're all conflicting. They're all, and that's why, I mean, philosophy. I also wrote in my blog post, I feel like philosophy is needed in the world today um, badly um, because it's it's not, you know, it's a neutral term uh, in between science and religion where it's really about uh, as a living practice. Philosophy is this long inner longing. I mean, and that that relates to the book. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of a trump card as well to a lot of the uh, the political happenings in the country or the world or this or that is like so the, you, you just said trump and political and i know said, i know <laughs> i but the when you it's nice to contemplate these philosophical ideas in almost a positive light in that way um of like isn't there something more isn't there something more meaningful because when you contemplate these deep philosophical ideas it kind of dwarfs a lot of the uh the day-to-day things right. that you can get like up in arms about you know Right. And uh, I, if I may, might add, one thing that I, I definitely try to do with this book is a lot of book, there are a lot of amazing books out there that take life apart from an existential standpoint and um, are great in terms of an exploration of self, but and, and that are not uh, rooted in faith uh, and not being rooted in faith. You have science to hold hold you together, and that is very depressing <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of looking at where we are in the universe. Who, I, what is my life in regards to the scientific reality that 
you know, is around us. That's really bleak. Um, and I tried very hard because I don't, I think there is a greater truth. Um, I don't think I have an answer to it, but I think at least I know the, or I've, I've, I know the right questions to explore, which are in the book of some kind of hope that it's not just bleak, uh, the willingness to really examine who I am, what my life is and not feel like, Oh boy, this is going to lead me down that road where I, you know, go, there is hope. Um, there is something there. Um, so. Yeah, then that's such a good point about a message in the book is, yeah, uh, Adam, the main character is kind of uh, tenuous, uh, it, like at first when he's when he's going down this path because he's worried about where to lead. And, you know, um, that, I mean, that's all I'll say. And then, it, you know, progresses from there. Um, but yeah, it's so it's so interesting um, that you that you wrote this whole uh, screenplay 20 years ago and then you had to adopt it for right now because I feel like. Um, so first I just want to read a quote here from Thoreau that I'm sure you're very familiar with that I learned from Wayne Dyer. And it's amazing because he said this in 1842, um, which like, I don't know what was going on in 1842, but nothing that I would consider like, you know, happening. Um, but he says new views are not new, but the very oldest thoughts cast into the mold of these new times. Just so funny that he's talking about that in the 1800s, like well, uh, actually, that these ideas these, are concrete and constant, and we're just looking yeah. at them in these "quote unquote" new times, the 1800s. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, this. I mean, it's great that you bring that up because he was part of the transcendental. Uh, the, there was a whole movement in America back then uh, with Thoreau. These these writers. They were like us, uh, just in their own time. I mean, it's, I, I read somewhere, I think it was, uh, well, you know, self, uh, interest in self-discovery wasn't invented in America in the 1960s. Um, there were <laughs> yeah. men and women in this country long ago who had the same deep, deep longing. Um, so yeah, I, I, and in that quote, as you mentioned, uh, the same questions appear with different uh, skins throughout time or different, you know, through different words. And, and that is a big part of why I wrote this book is because uh, today in the climate we're in, especially with technology. Um, now, I'm not a technology basher. I mean, we're on Skype right now. I, you know, I've got a computer and a cell phone and, a, and I struggle to, you know, not stare at my phone every day. That is such a big part of this inner struggle, inner longing. And thematically, if you want to go into this now, uh, the book, uh, one of the big themes in the book has to do with attention. Uh, and in one respect, you could look at what, what is attention? What is our attention? The book kind of takes one side, which is from a technology standpoint and a um, social standpoint right now, attention has become in a way the currency of today. Uh, you know, Facebook, you have companies that are worth billions of dollars before they even sell anything. And what is that? That's they command attention. They have ownership over um, uh, attention in the world. And that is value. Uh, you can see this in every single industry from marketing to everything. It's really attention is what we buy and sell. On the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, 
if you look at any spiritual practice or religion, um, at the heart of most every tradition, there's usually a practice of some sort uh, that involves the working with one's own attention inwardly. So whether that is meditation or prayer, uh, there are many examples of this, but it's all taking my attention and learning how to bring it in and what that does inside me. So now when you look at those together, you go, here we are in an age where the entire society is trying to steal your attention away from you, trying to get you to look at this ad, pull you here. We have screens in our pockets now. Uh, I mean, you have that, and then you have, okay, there is, there are practices and things that can lead to a greater understanding of oneself uh, inwardly, and they all require that thing that is being taken away from us. Mm-hmm. So I think placing this book in, in uh, you know, the Bay Area, especially uh, where technology is the, the landscape, uh, and t- in today's environment, it really, I'm, I'm trying to take on what are some of the major challenges that we have now that Thoreau didn't have and Herman Hesse didn't have. And, you know, they didn't have when uh, the guy wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or these other philosophical fiction books. It's a real major part of uh, anybody looking to uh, have some kind of inner life. And it's hard talking about this stuff because it's like dancing around religion, spirituality, uh, science. Like I'm a, I believe everything. I, I, I look at everything. I, I like science. I like religion. I like, I want to know, I just want to know. And I think there's a lot of people like me who are, uh, not there's so much. And yet I'm always at the surface. How do I go deeper? Whatever path you choose, that deeper path is going to involve this thing, <laughs> which is being taken uh, every day, which is your attention. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, the the reason why I bring up the uh, cast into these new times is that even even in the last twenty years, and I would I would love to know like how this changed then from when you first wrote it, because when you first wrote this, the internet either was non-existent or it was, you know, America online, like 2,500 free hours with this disc, uh, (laughs) stage internet. And then, you know, social media was non-existent. And I feel like the other, uh, kind of major enemy or topic that you get to address in the book that is not uh, addressed in such a, um, major or heavy handed way as, um, as technology is, but is, uh, like pharmaceuticals as well, which is another like major problem that we have in the world right now that it's like, (laughs) I wish so much that the, the government would do more to address because it's, it's just going to keep on this like runaway train if, if we don't do something to change what's up with pharmaceuticals. But so you have like people who would normally have problems with attention anyways because of all the technology around us, then you have people manipulating their personalities or manipulating what form of attention that they do have by taking, you know, anti-anxiety medications, uh, ADD medications, like whatever it is. And uh, 
It's uh, <laughs> all these things. Like it. I don't know how 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 big these were twenty years ago. So what? I guess what right. was the book about twenty years ago? <laughs> well, I just want to point out before I answer, ADD, attention deficit disorder, attention <laughs> yeah, deficit, man. or or uh, you know what are the kids that run? I guess that you have uh, kids who are on Adderall and stuff like that. That's for ADD, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean. Yes. So many things are rooted in this attention thing. Uh, Okay. So what this was 20 years ago was not about, um, it had nothing to do with the computers and, and, uh, technology. Um, it really had, it was the story. It was, um, this guy going to Mendes, going back to where he grew up and meeting someone from his past and the sort of mystery. And there's some big plot things I'm, I don't want to reveal um, that take place uh, in their relationship. That was kind of the essence. And, and that, the f- interesting story about that is, um, so you mentioned the main character, uh, there's Adam and then Beatrice is this woman he meets. Beatrice was an inspiration. It com- actually comes from Dante, from uh, the Divine Comedy. So, uh, and not even from the Divine Comedy. It's a reference of a reference. Uh, when I was young, uh, before I wrote the screenplay, um, one of those philosophical fiction books that really affected me was uh, Demian by Herman Hesse. And in that, he has a single chapter called Beatrice. And it's about the main character is a young guy and he lives in Germany and he's trying to figure out life. And he goes to a park uh, and he sees this girl by a fountain and he never meets her. Uh, but he just sees her that day and then he returns every day to the party and never sees her again. But then he starts painting her face and continues to paint her face and slowly it evolves into a different face. And, uh, into, I think it evolves into his own face eventually, but the, uh, he names her Beatrice after Dante's Beatrice, that chapter and, and that concept of love or uh, romance, longing, uh, or, is kind of a, a, a version of this other deeper longing uh, of wanting to understand, wanting something uh, untouchable. Uh, Beatrice, similar to Dante's Beatrice, the fact that he never meets her, the fact that he never knows her name, the fact that all he has is this singular impression allows her to become so much more. And, and it's, I have, I'm, I'm married and, uh, I'm all for relationships, but it's very different than the kind of relationships that we have as humans. It's a a relationship towards, uh, something beyond this unfathomable, infinite, intangible somethingness. Uh, and in the classic, um, arts, uh, painting and, and, and music, that longing that it's described, it's Eros, uh, in, in, uh, in Greek, uh, which we take now as like sex, but it's Eros is really the longing for this intangible unknown longing for understanding, uh, that's represented in that relationship in that book. And so I, I bring that up because my, that is the piece the major piece that came from that early script was this relationship with 
someone who is connects to his childhood um, is not of his normal world. And this is where, for me, stories, um, there are great, mo- I've, you've seen it in movies before, these relationships, I, uh, Lost in Translation is a beautiful version. Oh yeah, totally. Where it's this impossible relationship, it's not quite, it can never be consummated per se, it can never be a, a real thing, and, and there's something, because of the limitations of it, it becomes so much more. And, and that's the element that crossed over from the original script into the current one. Uh, the issues that the main character is dealing with evolved as I evolved and, and, uh, times evolved, but that's the, that what that's what crossed over. Man, that's such a beautiful thing you just brought up. I love that. Um, how much do you identify with the character of Adam? Like, do, is it like, that's me straight up? Or is it like, this is this hyperbolic version of me, or this is like a different version of me? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's evolved over time, but I, I, you know, in a way I'm all the characters in the book. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a little piece of me and everybody there. Uh, Adam. Yeah. Adam at, at a core level, uh, I very much relate to Adam. Um, and I would almost say Adam and Blake. So his partner, Blake, who's, I wouldn't really call him a the baddie or, you know, the bad guy or anything, but their relationship is very complex. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about this next. I'm really, I'm really happy about the way that you put their relationship in the book and everything. Um, and I'm happy with Blake as a character. I wanted to discuss whether or not you thought he was bad. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the more, but yeah, so it's, we'll stay on Adam right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I pair them together in terms of who I am because I have both of them in me, but in regards to Adam, yes, I identify with, with Adam as a person. Um, there are many elements in the book, uh, that are from my own life. Um, the grandmother, uh, is, is, is very much, uh, an, an homage to my own grandmother who was, uh, quite a unique woman. Um, the, uh, a lot of the, the details in the story and things he discovers and the stuff he goes through or things I've gone through or, or, you know, are, taken from my life and then fictionalized, uh, to various degrees. The, uh, I will say this. So the Beatrice, uh, thing I, and I, I know you, you had this, I think you mentioned this question. Is there a Beatrice in my life or has there been one? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yes, in a very interesting way in the book, there's pieces of their childhood together and there's this game they play with orange peels. Um, that actually is from my childhood. I, I knew a girl, I think it was it's one of the first memories I have, like preschool, maybe kindergarten, not quite kindergarten, but uh, have no idea what her name is. I have a vision in my, my head of who she was. And we used to play this game where she would have her orange peels, a pile of orange peels next to her on a bench. And I would sneak up and try to steal them from her. And then she would catch me and so that's straight from my own I love my it. own life. And in a way she she is if if there was ever a Beatrice in my life um it would be her in the sense that uh she just represents a, a I don't know, you know, an unknown uh an unknown beauty, I guess. Interesting. 
Interesting, man. Yeah, it's a Beatrice I was never re- reconnected with. Um, so, all right, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about Blake a little bit. And we didn't go over him in the uh, in the the synopsis of the book, but so Blake is Adam's best friend, uh, and they met in college, I think it is, and uh, Blake is his partner. They've like started a business together, and basically like. Adam is the brains and Adam is the one who's actually really talented at programming. And Blake is the one that has any sort of business sense whatsoever. And it keeps everything on track. And it's, it's interesting because it's like the, at times you look at their relationship and if you, you hold, you hold the lens up to it one way. And and I feel like you do a good job of doing this in the book of holding like various lenses up to different things. It's like, if you hold the lens up to their relationship in one way, it's almost like, Blake's too plugged into everything and more importantly it almost seems like Blake is like using Adam and that's like a actually mm-hmm. a topic that's directly brought up in the book. The thing about Blake though is it doesn't seem like he's actually a bad guy. He's certainly not like trying to I, I it's like him him quote unquote using Adam is also for Adam's own good. Like at least the way that he sees it, Mm -hmm. like he's, he's keeping Adam on track. He's keeping Adam uh, paid. Like if he didn't have, if Adam didn't have a partner with Blake's business sense, then what would Adam be doing? Just like he'd be programming Mm -hmm. at Microsoft or something, not making a lot of money, like not owning his own company. So Blake is this like, I don't know. He's very much like a yin to, he has everything that Adam does not have in, in, Mm -hmm. and Adam has everything that Blake does not have. Um, and Blake kind of keeps him in line. That being said, like in his keeping Blake in line, um, you start to realize as, as Adam is having this, uh, kind of philosophical, spiritual struggle that, that is not something that Blake really connects with or understands or wants to be a part of or wants to help out with. And that perhaps Blake is like almost has almost been keeping Adam in this cage um, Mm -hmm. to be like, look, this is how in Adam's wife very much plays this same role and stuff, but it's like, look, this is how you live. This is how you act. This is how you're going to do these things and you'll get on just fine. Which again, is I think a concept that a lot of people listening to this can probably relate to very much um which is like oh i have these like deeply philosophical ideas in my head but i have to operate this way in the world or but mm-hmm. but my mm-hmm. dad tells me that i talk too much at dinner parties so i need to be quiet right now or you know what i'm saying like mm-hmm. i need to operate within these confines and i it's like blake kind of represents those confines for adam so mm-hmm. i guess yeah you you already just said that you see both of them in yourself i guess how do you see blake in yourself and were you trying to make blake a like bad character or it's just this is just a guy like this is a product of the world right now well um yeah i mean in terms of those confines yeah there's blake who's kind of representing business and his is that side there's his wife which is kind of the confines of relationship uh very much and then the doctor his doctor, psychiatrist, who's kind of the physical, chemical um, confines of this is this is the track you're meant to be on. Uh, This is the life you're meant to live. I mean, that's the quote on the back of the book about something in me knows of a life uh, I was meant to live, but for some reason have not. Um, Blake. Yeah. So I think I'm sure there's a million founders out there and, you know, in, in computer companies or software companies that have this kind of pairing, you know, the, the, you got the brains, I got the brawn, uh, or, 
there's the face of the company, the guy that's good with all the, you know, chatting up the uh, investors and doing all of that. And then there's the guy who's doing the, you know, the work or he's good at the, so it's, it's kind of a pairing of that. And the reason I say it's, it also is a reflection of me is I think anybody has this in them, which is anyone who's, especially if you're an artist of some sort or you're any kind of creator, uh, definitely includes, uh, software and, and technology. There's one side of you that is creating and and has a respect for that and has an interest in that. And then there's the, oh, but I got to sell it. I got to sell my stuff. So for myself as a, a actor and a filmmaker, I love the doing. I love acting. I love, you know, making art. I just hate selling myself. I hate having to, you know, I feel like I'm you know, putting myself on a block. I just, I'm not good at that. I have friends that are geniuses at self-promotion and they love being in the limelight, being out there and, and both are needed. Um, and so I feel like it's very easy to take a character like Blake and just make him a baddie and have him be, oh, he's the guy who takes advantage of the main, the genius, his genius friend, and he's stealing all his ideas. Well, he's not he's not stealing his ideas. He's facilitating them in the world. And in a weird way, this connects to a much deeper philosophical thing, which is. There's a if you think of uh, think of it this way, Adam, there's a metaphor in the book about butterflies and bees. And Adam is a butterfly and he floats off to the unknown and he takes he, he, he's able to find flowers that nobody's seen before. He's able to create truly original things in his work. What good are they? He, he doesn't really care about selling them. He just knows how to find them. Blake can take those, take those flowers and go, oh, okay, they're, and knows how to sell them and, and bring them into the real world. Well, bringing them into the real world, you have to tarnish them. They have to become real. They can't stay as uh, touching perfection. They have to be blemished to be able to sell them. And this is true with anybody who's been an art, who's an artist or whatever. There's something about the perfection of the idea, the thing you see, the vision, the, the concept. And when it comes into reality, when it becomes a real thing, it loses something. It has to lose something, especially if it's going to be sold and consumed because the people that want to consume it, the how do you get it to them, how do you relate it to them, you have to bring it down. And, it, you know, you could say dumb it down or things like that. But that relationship is explored in these two characters, I believe. And so that's why I say they're both in me, because, yes, as an artist, I I have to I can't just sit in my room and act to myself or, or make films with my, I guess I could, but, um, to connect to the rest of the world, to participate with society, with art, there has to be a translator or transition. And in the book, it's two different people, but in me and a lot of people, you know, they're both inside of us. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's almost like one for that matter is like your, uh, your philosophical side and the other one is your more like logical side. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah I got to do this thing. So it's interesting. You just mentioned 
that when you get something um, or something like becomes reality, that it like loses a little bit of something, you know? Um, and I would definitely agree with that. So I, are, first of all, are we allowed to mention the fact that this is going to be the first book in a trilogy? Is that not allowed to be talked about? <laughs> oh, is that okay? Well, seeing how you just mentioned it, yes, that's totally allowed. Okay. I just didn't want to, I, I wanted the first book to stand alone. I, I, and it totally does, by I, the way. Like when you uh, told me there was a trilogy, I'm like, this is great because I love this first one and that's awesome. There's two more, but I thought that was it. I was like, oh, cool. Like it, it ends itself perfectly, you know? Right, right. Yeah, well, I just didn't want to. I, I feel like I see books and it's like, oh, book three of a trilogy, book four. This, and I'm like, I don't have time to get into this giant thing. I just want to read a book. Yeah. So I didn't. I don't want. Didn't want to publicize it. But yes, I intend on writing two more books uh, to continue what this story starts. So first of all, as a side note, this might be the first ever philosophical fiction trilogy. We got to look into that. I don't know how many people <laughs> have done that. But uh, second of all, so on the point of like losing something once you once it becomes more real, um, I'm really interested to see what happens with Adam going forward past the end of this book because he, um, he has a breakthrough of sorts towards the end of the book and it's like when all of a sudden you have this now it's uh it's really cool when you you know i'll use like falling in love as an example you know like falling in love is so much fun and it's so passionate and it's so whatever like two years later three years later ten years later you probably don't feel the same way that you did in the first two weeks where just like looking at the person there's like butterflies and you know mm -hmm. there's not like the same wow like behind you all the time just like raw emotion so i'm really interested to see how he like settles into the new him per se and like these things being his actual life now and not just these ideas and and whatever right Right. Yeah. Well, just like a relationship, it's it's uh, it's the first step onto, you know, an island that you realize is a mountain that you're about to climb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well said, man. That's awesome. Uh, do you have the entire trilogy concepted out in your head or what? Not not fully, but a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I've always appreciated uh, art or novels or films that, you know, create a world, uh, enough of a world that's kind of, I like ones that are on the edge that are not necessarily, uh, I like science fiction, but more, uh, I don't know what the name for it is. It's close enough to me and my world that I can relate to it. And yet it's just on the edge of the unreal yeah, uh, of, of something unknown. And so, I've tried to kind of in this book stake out kind of the realm of where I'm going to play, and yeah, I have I have a lot of ideas of where I'm where we'll go. Have you started writing the second book yet? I'm supposed to. I've been. I'm well. You know, as this is my new my first book, I'm I'm learning about uh, how much you have to put into promoting and trying to get people to read it. Uh, so I've been a little preoccupied, but I'm hoping to uh, yeah dig in at least before the end of the year. So talk to us about that. Let's jump off the uh, the plot of the book and everything for a little bit and talk about what happens after you write a book. So right. what could, I mean, this a lot of people that write books now are like self-published or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like this is a a a very real publishing company and 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 
like a huge, awesome company to put out a book with. So what do you have to do now? Like, are you going to be going to Barnes and Nobles and signing books and like patting babies on the head and stuff? <laughs> Is that what they do? I, those, I, the, I, I, yeah, that's definitely what they do. Uh, yeah. Pat babies on the head. Um, I'm going to do some, uh, book signing slash readings, uh, around the Bay area, uh, and, uh, a few in LA probably, I'm not going to do a whole ton. Uh, there, what I've learned is this, uh, everything, most everything is most effective online. Uh, the way people buy books now it's different. Let's say you're Michael Chabon or a big name author. Yeah. You go to Barnes and Nobles and like, 300 people show up to see you speak. Um, how do you promote a book, especially when it's your first book? Uh, a lot more is done online and, uh, uh, and even things like this podcasts. And how do you get to people? How do you, um, communicate what the book is about? Um, brick and mortar bookstores. There's just not as many of them. Um, so I'm doing a few events for myself and for my family. Um, and just to try to spark the the kindling to to get get the fire going. I mean, ultimately, it's a novel. Uh, people have to read it, and the way people usually uh, get books is they hear about it. Somebody else read it and said, "This is good." So until people start reading it, there's only so much I can do. Um, it's not like I wrote a nonfiction book about, uh, the JFK assassination and we can talk about that the whole time. Yeah. Uh, it's a story, you know, there's only so much you can say before you have to read it. And, uh, somebody has to go, Oh, Hey, this is a good book here. Uh, and give it to, to your friend or whatever. So that's, that's really how novels take off is word of mouth. Um, are you more so, nervous about this than you've been about, projects in the past so you come from the hollywood world so you act and you direct and you written screenplays and things like that i feel like even if you wrote a screenplay and directed it and stuff like that that there's still such a big team of people working on a movie (laughs) um i feel like i would be much more nervous about writing a book and the and the book's release than I would be about a movie's release. Because it's like you have this this company that backed you for the and not to try to make you nervous, but you have this company that backed you to publish this book and now they're just waiting for the for the release date and, that, and then it's like boom like all eyes on you and there's no one else for anyone to look at. Like you're the only one that everyone can look at. So does that breed like more anxiety for you than a typical release? Uh, sure. It's a little closer to, uh, stand up comic, which is to me, I think the, the scariest of careers. Uh, there's no, you're, it's you on a stage. Uh, yeah. With the novel, there's nobody else to blame, but, uh, at the same time, it's a little different because, you know, with a film, uh, you got, uh, I had a film, you have to go to film festivals and you have to sit and watch it with people. And that's nerve wracking. I'm not going to sit next to you while you read my book. <laughs> I mean, I wish you so, would. Oh, well, <laughs> you pay me enough, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, so it's a little more distant than film because, uh, people, you know, you sell the book, people go off and read it on their own. So I'm, I'm a little more distant from the actual uh, process of people taking it in. So that's a little 
not as bad. But you're right. I mean, with the film, with uh, a lot of other things, that when you have more people involved, then there's more people to blame, and there's also more people to take the credit for it. Uh, with the novel, yeah, I mean, it's this is this is bearing yourself in a way. Uh, so yeah, I am I am very nervous nervous about it. Thank you very much for helping me become more nervous. Absolutely, that is, look, that's what I'm here that's, for. Yeah, so the other thing is, I you know I've experienced this with um, my podcast. You've obviously experienced it for a lot of your life with movies and everything. And it'll be, uh, I feel like a, a deeper experience of this with the book where we like to believe, um, and, and people like Tony Robbins would say like, you know, the cream rises to the top. Like if you just work harder, like this is how this all works out. And yet we all know of like plenty of amazing authors that like did not become famous until after they were dead. And then you read these books and it's like, oh my God, these books are great. And it's like, well, what, what happened exactly? You know? And the answer is like, I, I don't know. Like, I guess I don't know how to get people talking about stuff. You know, it's like you, you, mm-hmm. you luckily have this company behind you and all these other things. Um, but yeah, that's a very interesting thing in these, in these next like couple of months of like, please just, just read it. Like, please read it. And I swear you'll like it, but like, you just have to try it. And, and how do you get in front of enough people? You know, like it's a very, uh-huh. it's a very interesting thing, especially with technology and, and, you know, today's world trying to come yeah. talking about competing for attention. You know, I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. Right. Well, I mean, it's a novel, you know, not as many people read, or, well, I, a lot of people read, but uh, there's it's a bit more of a long game. Um, and if the book doesn't become popular for two, three years, hey, that's fine. Um, I think with the Tony Robbins stuff, uh, you just got to keep doing it. You know, uh, even though it seems like a ton of work and it was a ton of work to write a novel with anything, you just got to keep going, keep going. And so it's about having a body of work. And, um, I am the guy who changes careers every five minutes, which is not always smart, but, um, at least with writing, my feeling is this is, you know, I'm going to, I need to just keep working, Mm -hmm. keep keep your head down. So you mentioned that this took you four years to write. Um, did you ever experience any writer's block during this time or was it just, you would like purposefully take breaks to reflect on things and stuff? Uh, yeah. Oh, of course. Um, not just writer's block, but like writers, um, what the hell am I doing with my life? I've ruined it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go first the nearest bridge that I can jump off of. Yeah. Um, writer's block. Uh, oh God. I, I think the key of being able to step away and, uh, having gone through it, gone through something once and seeing that you survive it's not as hard going through it again. So a lot of times I would get to a place writing where I was like, okay, I've just wasted two years of my life. This is horrible. What am I doing? I have no idea, you know, or on a, a, a literally a paragraph. I've done great up to here. And this paragraph has been like, I've been on this paragraph for two weeks. What's going on? Yeah. And really it's about persistence and then always stepping away and coming back and knowing that the freshness that you have coming back allows things to open up and change. And that's, I mean, that's the best advice I could give because that's, uh, it's not easy. 
but yeah. you know. So I would love to know, well, first of all, how many people have uh, got like early copies of the book or read this through drafts or anything like that? Like how many total people read this? Uh, not too many. Cause you know, I'm not an established author. So I was, I had to beg people, um, <laughs> one of them, <laughs> uh, I, you know, maybe two, do- uh, a dozen, uh, uh, yeah, probably about a dozen. Wow. Um, all right. First of all, I feel honored. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, second of all, I imagine, you know, you check back in with everyone and see, obviously if they like the book and takeaways and stuff like that. Did anyone give you like a particularly interesting takeaway that you were not expecting, like when they finished reading the book? I was very surprised. Okay, so it's a male character, and the main character's a guy. And I had fears that this, you know, was going to, oh, great, it's going to relate to men and they're going to relate to the main character, but women are going to read it and go, eh. And uh, one of my very first readers was a, 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 old friend of mine who I haven't seen in years, who, uh, is far enough away from me that if she hated it, she could be honest and I I wouldn't punch her in the nose or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she, you know, she said, I felt like you read secretly read my diary and put it all in a book. And, uh, I mean, it was very complimentary and I, I was thankful for that, but more, I think these, the themes and the ideas and what Adam is struggling with is very universal. It's not a, a man's struggle or a woman's struggle. I mean, you know, there's certain things about he's a guy. So there's certain things that are from his point of view, but this is a longing that is in everyone. Uh, and we're all struggling with it. And so just to, just to have it play out, uh, I think for a lot of people will allow them to know they're not alone and hopefully and give some hope um, so to speak. I love it, man. Um, is there any sort of takeaway that you want people to have after reading this, or is it just a framework with which for people to think about these concepts? Um, I would say this, I, I, uh, you know, novels in a way have gone the way of film in terms of, Oh, they're for entertainment. Um, or uh, let's, I need to relax. So I'm going to read a novel. Well, stories are not just for entertainment. Uh, stories have the ability to go very deep and touch something in us that you can't do just through through straight information. So, um, And in this philosophical way, it can touch something perhaps like lying dormant inside you, you know? Yes, yes. And so for me, the greatest takeaway would be if uh, someone read this novel and it inspired other things in them, you know, uh, other aspects in their life they could open up to or or see uh, as possible where they saw it before is not possible. Whatever that may be, that would be the greatest uh, you know takeaway in my mind because um, I think there is a underneath it all it's it's inspiration that uh, drives all of the best art in for me um, are things that I leave the film or put the book down or, or walk away from the painting. And I feel like alive and I want to, I want to do, I want to be. So that would be, hopefully that will, will uh, at least a few people will feel that. Yeah. Awesome, man. I definitely think they will. I, uh, we only have one question left, which is kind of like an advice related question. I just want to read a quick 
like paragraph and a half from the book really quick, if that's okay with mm-hmm. you. Um, it's from just like the first five or six pages of the book, like right at the beginning when everything's setting up. But I remember when, you know, you told me that you wrote this book and it's your first book. And when someone tells you it's going to be their first book, it's like, I feel like you expect a certain level of writing, you know, because it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's like never written before. And it's like, you're such a good writer. It's unbelievable. So I just want my listeners to hear this and then run out and get the book because the book's so good. And in addition to these awesome philosophical ideas is it's just written so well and it's written in this such a palatable, approachable way um, in both the philosophical idea department and... um, and just the everything department. And I feel like this paragraph and a half like really kind of encapsulates that. So it says, as a nurse's assistant, she had a stellar reputation at both SF General's mental health crisis unit, as well as here at the Presidio House, the hospital's long-term inpatient rehab facility. For 25 years, she dealt responsibly with patients afflicted with every imaginable mental condition from severe paranoid schizophrenia to bipolar disorder, not to mention extreme brain trauma cases, including one woman so convinced that she was a parking meter that she almost died from eating loose change. There was just something different about Adam. Something strange and serious, as if the thin air, as if the air around him was a little thicker. Like that feeling you get when you're inside a windy old church, she had once confided to Dr. Agopian. So, uh, and then she goes on to say, and all the jibber jabber in your head slips away a wee bit, and you feel yourself getting quiet and respectful. Uh, like, to immediately on the back of the, like, woman so convinced that she was a parking meter that she almost died from eating loose change to then immediately go into, uh, you know, when you're around him, you the air feels a little bit thicker and you feel like you get that feeling when you're in a windy old church and you just feel like yourself getting quiet and respectful. Um, like, that's just one of the myriad of examples of the uh, the... I don't know, just like your way with words and the uh, simile and metaphor and stuff like that is just done so well. And there's any of the parts with philosophy, like this isn't just some like deeply, like I feel like that, like the, the you know, woman so convinced that she was a parking meter that she almost died from eating loose change. It's like, that's not going to be in a typical philosophy book from a hundred <laughs> years ago, you know? And so I feel like it, it keeps such a... um a lightheartedness about it while it's delivering mm-hmm. these uh these heavy ideas and kind of goes back and forth between lighthearted and heavy and um mm-hmm. yeah man just so so well, well done i think it's awesome everyone needs to re- like it's just great there's not enough books like this and this is a, a phenomenal book like this so um <laughs> Let's finish off with uh with a little piece of advice for people. So you've now written a full length novel. Um, mm-hmm. What would you say is the biggest lesson looking back on the last four years that you learned about this process, anything wise? Um, and like, therefore, what advice would you give to a prospective writer now that you've done it? Now that your first book is done. Mm. Well, I'll give one one. The first thing that came to mind is not just for writing, but for creative work. Well, kind of for anything you're trying to do, accomplish. Um, I found that talking about it to other people can disperse the energy that can go towards the creation itself. That often we go, oh, I'm writing this book and I, and I, and I want to tell you. And, I st- and, and that kind of satiates the part of me that could actually the energy that could go to the accomplishment itself. Um, there's a, 
in today's environment where we share everything and we, you know, here's an update of this and that. And I feel like the concept of sacredness has slipped away. And I think if you bring that into your work and uh, perhaps if you're writing a a book or whatever, um, making it a sacred thing, which is you don't just chat about it, gossip about it. You don't allow it to lower down from the place that it belongs, which is you treat it seriously, I guess. Um, So I, I found that that just allows it allows creating something, whatever it is, to rise up and be more, uh, have more value. You treat it that way, and the likelihood of moving forward with it uh, goes up. So that would be my advice. I love that, man. That's very interesting. I, I always grapple with the concept of that versus, you know, accountability to others and stuff if you tell people about things. But, I mean, you know well that, like, I love... Wayne Dyer, like no other, uh, like, you know, uh, no other like philosophical, spiritual person that I've ever listened to or read or anything like that. And he speaks on exactly what you just said, that when you have your thing, like keep that to yourself. Don't go like telling everyone else about it. Right. And I think just what you said, there is a role for accountability and there's a great, I constantly give myself deadlines of, you know, I tell my best friend, uh, Hey, I'd like you to read something I wrote. I'll give it to you. And you know, a week from now, knowing full well, I won't be able to finish it (laughs) because that helps. But there's a difference there because it's, uh, that's not, that's different than the dispersion of uh, the taking the, your creative energy and just spilling it out to people. That's very true. Yeah. You can set up, you can set up a limited systems of checks and balances for yourself. Like having your one friend proofread it once a month or something. That's very different than like you said, updating everyone every couple days on Facebook. That's, those are wholly different things. Right. I think it's, it's, there's a great energy in, in the keeping things to yourself and the keeping things sacred that, uh, I think don't, uh, deny yourself that energy would be the point. Yeah. Awesome, man. I love it. Uh, Dude, Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's always such a pleasure. I love you. We love you. Um, Go out and buy the book. It's called What Lies Beyond the Stars. I read the whole thing. It's um, it's just phenomenal. Uh, So thank you so much, man. Absolutely. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you told a friend about it to help spread the word about the show. And if you've been listening to the show for a little while and been enjoying yourself, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That's a way that a lot of people learn about new podcasts. And the more reviews and the better reviews that a podcast gets, the more people that that podcast ends up in front of. So that would be a really awesome way to help the show. And if you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, yeah, that's all fine and good, Blake, but uh, what are you going to do to help me out? Well, how about being a guest on Half Hour Intern? That is right. You could totally be a guest on this show. So if you have been sitting there listening to this show and thinking to yourself, you know what? I do this totally awesome thing for a living. Or you know what? I have this awesome hobby that I'm really, really passionate about and I would love to tell people about it. Go to halfhourintern.com and click on the Submit Your Ideas link at the top of the page. And through there, there will be forms that you can fill out to get in touch with me about the possibility of coming on the show and being a guest yourself on the Half Hour Intern Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening.